This is the Puck Junk Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Puck Junk Hockey Podcast. I'm Sal Barry and along with me is Tim Parrish and Clemente Lisi. Today we're going to do another set retrospective, a setrospective, if you will, about the 1993-94 Upper Deck Hockey Set. I'm feeling very nostalgic about things from 30 years ago because I'm old enough to feel nostalgic about things from 30 years ago. We'll also talk about the new checklist that was just announced for 23-24 Opeechi. We'll talk about the ownership group in Utah applying for uh, an expansion team in Salt Lake City. We'll talk about that case of Opeechi hockey from 79-80 that was recently discovered and put up for auction. And we'll talk about a few other interesting odds and ends. So gentlemen, how are we this fine, fine evening as we record? Tim, we'll start with you. Oh, I'm as fine as a maiden's flaxen hair. How are you? Trying to like not like cough um, while we record. All of a sudden I have a cough and I don't know why. I'm going to be hitting that mute button a lot. You're just happy to see me. You're all choked up. I'm all choked up. You know, I had a birthday over the weekend and no, this isn't from partying hard because when you reach a certain age, you really don't want to go out for your birthday. You're just like, eh, oh, whatever. It's one of those numbers that's not an even number. Like the comic Patton Oswalt was talking about birthdays and he's like, this is the birthdays you should celebrate. You should celebrate one through 10. Always have a birthday party for one through 10 because birthdays are a big deal up until about 10. He goes, then you got to celebrate the 16th birthday, the 18th birthday, the 21st birthday, the 25th birthday, the 30th birthday, but then after that, just every 10 years. And I agree with him on that, but went out with the family, got a couple of uh, gifts. My girlfriend got me a Chicago Blackhawks digital clock. It has the numbers really big on it, like big digital numbers, because I always have trouble telling time. So I can like put it on my shelf, my bookshelf up in my living room. And I, when I'm like watching TV, I can kind of like glance over it and see what time it is instead of having to look at my phone. Because whenever I look at my phone, I'm going to start playing with my phone. So it's just nice that I could just kind of look over and be like, oh, it's 1230. Maybe I should go to bed. Also has the temperature, the date, you know, important stuff that you need to know. My sister got me a box of 2324 MVP, a blaster box of 2324 MVP. And then like my aunt, sister, and brother-in-law all chipped in and bought me a set of luggage because I'm like the only person in the family who travels. And granted, most of that travel has to do with either going to see a hockey game in another town or going to a card show in another town or sometimes going to a hockey game and a card show in another town. So. Yeah, I'm doing great. Clemente, how about you, man? I'm good. I'm just waiting for the month to end. Why is that? Well, I thought I had tickets to a Rangers game that is a week from now, not now. So there you go. <laughs> Don't you hate when that happens? I was telling you guys stories about how people I know missed games thinking they were earlier. At least in my case, I didn't show up a week early. But I'm, I'm not excited for the month to end. The other thing, too, is, you know, that newness of January is kind of gone now but i did have someone say to me recently a couple days ago said oh yeah happy new year i had like a larry david moment i'm like 
isn't there like a like you were saying birthdays to celebrate? I'm thinking like after January 11th. Yeah, when are we done with that? Yeah, like is there like a date that you have to stop doing that? And so I don't know. Maybe I'm so eager to get out of January myself, but I'm like, it's January twenty something. You're telling me happy Happy New Year. Oh, because you haven't seen me. So what if you see me in March? We can say Happy New Year in March. That doesn't make any sense. So anyway, yeah, I think like. Christmas decorations have to come down by January fifth, and uh, unless the yeah, fifth is like, the, unless the fifth is the middle of the week, then you could stretch it to whatever that weekend. It still has is. a pumpkin it, on the front porch, so I don't know. And then, mm-hmm. and then you have to do um, Happy New Year. I think up until January fifteenth is okay. Okay, so halfway, halfway the month, halfway through the month, two weeks. Halfway through the month, yeah, because you know that's there's a like, moratorium on it after that. Yeah, I mean, that's like 5% of the year, I think, right? I mean, two weeks, 52, I don't know. I'm going to say math is not my strong suit, but that's not true. I was smart enough in math in high school to just barely be in honors math, like just barely. But in college, I was smart enough to test to a high enough math class that that was the only math class that I needed to take. Like if I took like the regular math class, I would have had to take another math class after that, but I was able to like take a test and then they said, oh, well, you don't need to take this math. You can take this math. And I said, okay, I was smart enough in math to not have to take more math, basically. I'm still shocked that you think Christmas decorations should be down by the fifth. That's not even to Orthodox Christmas. I know. That's the, I the, the 7th of January, right? At least. Yeah, you at least have to pass the 7th. Yeah. Well, I thought the I thought the three wise men came on the 4th. The 6th. Orthodox Christmas is like 6th or 7th, yeah. depending on when it Orthodox falls. Christmas but... that, yeah. Ours went down, not this past weekend, but the weekend before. Wait, so you saw the tree see... up in your living room or, or just the outdoor stuff? <laughs> We're ballers. We have two trees. Wow. We have one upstairs and one downstairs. Wow. Nice. The fancy ones upstairs, like the one that has like cool decorations and like sports things and all the decorations that the kids made over the years that are half falling apart, but right. someone likes to save for sentimental, sentimental. And yeah. yeah, yeah, that's the tree for downstairs. The upstairs tree is the plastic on the couch tree. I call it the, the, the good ornaments. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't you don't touch that glass stuff. Yeah, but, yeah. Those went down. Not last weekend, but the weekend before. So I don't put outside decorations up, though, very right. much because right. I don't want to be sitting in the middle of February trying to take them down in a snowstorm. So, right. One thing I just want to announce really quick uh, I have another t shirt design that has uh, been finished and I'm taking pre orders for it. I will post a picture of it in the show notes, but it's another hockey card wrapper design. Uh, when I initially started doing these puck junk t-shirts that looked like hockey card wrappers, I did four of them at the end of 2019. And then the whole pandemic thing really just kind of like, like put a kibosh on like my little t-shirt business for a couple of years. You know, then I started up again and I started doing some like video game designs and stuff like that. But I have a, another hockey card wrapper design meant to look like a 1990s card wrapper and it has a goalie on it. So I will uh, post a picture of that. And also if you pre-order it through me between now and February 7th, I'll knock five bucks off the price. I'm doing like a pre-order sale, but you'll have to DM me for details on that or email me at sjb at puckjunk.com. So 
Yay. Always like it when I finally get another design done and ready to put out there into the world. All right. What you want to talk about? You want to talk about this uh, Utah ownership group applying to have another NHL team or an expansion team in Salt Lake City, which kind of makes sense. But I'm going to just say this from the get-go. There's too many damn teams. 32 is the perfect number. Knock it off. They're going to get to 36 teams, 40 teams. When do you stop? When do you stop? Like, just because you can have more babies doesn't mean you should have more babies, right? Like, everybody hits that, like, number of, like, we have five children. We're good. We have two children. We're good. Or in my case, I have no children, and I'm just great. You know what I mean? But, like, how many freaking NHL teams do we need? That's a bad example because we're talking about Utah. So um, <laughs> so they have, like, what, yeah. zero children? Or I, I don't know. No, they're, they're the Mormons, Mormons, right? It's Mormons. I don't know what Mormons yeah. do or don't do. Well, I'm, I'm not going to get <laughs> I'm not going to get into that here. They have lots of kids or they have but, no kids. There's lots. Okay. Well, um, there you go. Let's put it there's a built-in fan base already. No, I'm kidding. But uh. Yeah. So so Utah applies to the league for an expansion team, right? So Smith Entertainment Group and those of you that have never heard of that before, they own the Utah Jazz. So there are already ownerships in another major sport. Uh, they already have a ton of money, and they formally put a bid in to talk with the NHL to say, hey, we want a team. The NHL's response to that, cool, see you later, because they're not ready to expand yet. And Gary has gone on record saying that numerous times, but they look forward to future discussion with them. Now, look, in their request, they said, and they they essentially drew out the baseline for it, but it they have immediate availability to host an NHL team. So they could play in the Delta Center. It's set up so you could actually put a hockey rink in there and have games tomorrow if you wanted to. And well, before they put that bid up, the Utah State Legislature basically unanimously passed a resolution that backed their bid. So the state wants it. The owners want it. My question is, so the average NHL team is worth like $1.3 billion in the last surveys that they did about a year ago. That's the average. Obviously, like teams like the Maple Leafs, worth way more. But $1.3 billion is the average. Seattle costs $650 million to get a franchise. What is this going to cost? Eight? Nine? I mean, are, are we pushing a billion dollars now for a team to get in the league? Because here's the thing. You hear all these places say, hey, we want a team, we want a team, we want a team. Okay, great. Could Houston support a team? Sure. Could Atlanta support another team? That's the rumor. You know, everybody's been clamoring for another team back in Quebec. If this team's going to cost eight, $900 million U.S., you think there's anybody in Quebec that's going to pay that money? Absolutely not. It's not happening. So. You know, Quebec or even Hamilton's put in interest. No, that isn't going to happen. As much as I'd like to see another team in Canada, I, I don't see that going down. But I, I guess that that's my question. What are your thoughts on it? What do you think it's going to cost? Well, probably in the neighborhood of $750 million. I, I think a billion is ridiculous. So you think it would only go up $100 million from Seattle's bid a few years ago? Well, I mean, Vegas was $500 million. I was surprised that 
It went from 500 million to 650 million in just a couple of years. That seems like a very big jump. You know what I mean? Like 150 million in just a matter of a couple of years. I mean, I get it. I mean, I remember when the franchise fees in the early 90s were $50 million. I remember there was, it was on the front page of the hockey news back in like 91 or something. It just said 50 million was like the headline, right? Like, because that was just such, that was like, Dr. Evil with his like $1 billion, right? I mean, 50 million just seemed like such a, like a crazy number, but yeah. Okay. Well, even just 25 years ago, the Blue Jackets and the Wild, that was 80 million for them to get in. Yeah. So by early nineties, 50 million, late nineties, 80 million, right? You know, then we expand, uh, what from, uh, 2000 with 2001, that was like the last set of expansion teams until, until the Vegas Golden Knights in 2017. So in a 17-year span, you go from 80 million to 500 million. I mean, I get it. The NHL is more popular than ever. But first of all, why can't they just take the freaking Coyotes and move them to Utah? It's funny. We have a team with no arena. And we have an arena with no team. This sounds like a dating show, right? He's a hockey team looking for an arena. She's an arena looking for a team. Can they make it work? Find out on NHL Matchmaker. They wouldn't have to change their name either. There's Coyotes in Utah. Mm-hmm. It could be the Utah Coyotes. No, I, I get your point on that. You know, moving a team rather than starting a team. I mean, there obviously there's going to be startup costs with that and everything too. But you know, I just look at it from the standpoint of, I don't think it would only go up a hundred million. I think it's going to go up a lot because you have to have the NHL board of governors and the team owners sign off on this and they want their money. So the league has really not grown to the point of that much gap from where, where it was before. I mean, look, the salary cap's only going up a million dollars next year. So, you know, teams are, not going to be in that much better shape than they were this past couple years where it didn't move at all. So I don't know. I think it's going to be a lot. I really do. I think I would say it's going to push closer to 900, but who knows? It's far down the road. It's definitely something to, you know, keep on the, keep in the back of your mind that it may happen, but you know, we'll see. It's interesting. I agree with all your points. I do think that we have too many teams as it is, and I always worry about the talent pool maybe being watered down a bit, uh, especially with goaltending. Competitive balance, that's always a concern. Yeah, and then the other thing, too, is, right, number of teams in each you know conference, but also I'd rather see a Canadian team or at least more franchises in Canada, less of them in these warm markets. I feel like the NHL is like going back to the 90s playbook. It's like... You know, and I agree. You have the Coyotes that are basically a, a team that is, you know, is 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 has very little interest, and so just move them. I don't think anybody would miss them in Arizona. And you know, tying uh, you know ownership group with the NBA team. I mean, that works. I think a lot of NHL franchises have an NBA, you know, either tenant in the building or same ownership. So that works. I, that I get. But I don't like the idea of, you know, more teams. And, and look, it looks like the league is agreeing with us, but they're just putting the brakes on it. It's inevitable. But you're right. You'll have 40 teams, 45 teams. I mean, it's out of control. I mean, maybe they should try to get a minor league team and then do that. 
you know, and then see how that works out. But otherwise, there should uh, be like a tier one and a tier two, like in European soccer. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I I know people don't, are not ready for promotion relegation in this country. And I understand that, but and I'm not saying that. But I'm saying there's enough to to create a minor league hockey team if you want to do that, and then you know, and then whatever. Utah has the Grizzlies. That's a minor league team. Are they owned by? Are they are they tied up with the Jazz or not? Not at all. I, I don't. I think it's separate. I yeah, I think so. I don't, I don't think they're. Yeah, it's not like they're that. not affiliated. Right. I think they're they're an ECHL team. Look, I think so. that because of Seattle and Vegas. Look, those are like shiny toys. Like they they built these teams. They won championships. It's very exciting. Those markets are, are you know very responsive to the team, and I think everyone thinks they can do that. You know, I don't know if that's the case everywhere. We've had some disasters in the past, right? But I don't know. I agree with you guys. I think it's it's a bad idea. A lot of those disasters in the past can be attributed to, like, I think two reasons, really. One was overexpansion because they were competing with the World Hockey Association. And then two, kind of also related, is that those World Hockey Association teams, when they came here, were given such poor terms. Like, the terms of surrender were so terrible that those teams just couldn't sustain themselves, right? So, I mean, they could. Edmonton could because Edmonton had Gretzky and Edmonton won championships, and also Edmonton did a hell of a good job of drafting, right? But one of the contingencies was we get to keep Gretzky no matter what. And so, like, you look at, like, Quebec Nordiques, like, how they had like their best players were basically pillaged from them and they had to give up things so that they could keep some things and try to be competitive. Or you have teams like, you know, going back to like the Atlanta Flames. Why was there an Atlanta Flames team? Well, they put a team there so the World Hockey Association couldn't, you know, or, you know, or to compete with teams. Like, I like to point this out. I don't think I've ever met an Islanders fan, but the whole reason why the Islanders exist was just to F with the World Hockey Association. The New York Raiders were going to play at Nasu Coliseum. But then when the NHL said, hey, we're going to put another hockey team in New York because we can, then uh, Nasu Coliseum was like, oh, well, we'd rather have this NHL team than this World Hockey Association team, right? You know, so you had these teams that kind of like were set up and they couldn't really succeed unless they just lasted a long time. Like the fact that the Sharks lasted, well, no, actually the Sharks made the playoffs by like 94, knocked off the Red Wings, and that was like such a big deal that they were able to do that. But like, you know, you think about like how teams like the Sharks and the Senators, how they were just like terrible out the gate, right? And so then when you have a team like Vegas who – is competitive their first season, maybe a little too competitive, but I'm not complaining. And fans get all angry. Fans, fans, you know, people who 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 read the headline but don't read the article, those fans, right? Also people in markets like Toronto where they're like, we're trying to win a Stanley Cup for decades here and this these new people show up and they win it. I mean, I, I get that too. But. Well, then, you know, here's the thing. When you have 32 teams in the league your odds of winning the championship go down, right? Like if there was only six teams in the league, you have a one in six chance. I know it doesn't really work that way because during the original six era, I think most of the championships were won by Toronto, Montreal, or uh, Detroit were like the haves. And then you had like 
the Blackhawks, the Bruins, and the Rangers, who kind of every now and then they'd have a championship season, right? And speaking of Toronto, why don't they have a second team? They could support a second team. People would go to the games. People would support the team. They should have a second team. I know New York has like two NHL teams, and I explained why they have that second team, and they have like two NFL teams. If you count the metro area, the Devils has a, the third team in New York, basically. Right. But I mean, a lot of that was when you go to like, say the football thing, you had the AFL and the NFL, right? Or you go to the baseball thing and you had like the American League and the National League. I mean, that's why Chicago has two baseball teams. That would never happen today. Right. But back then, you know, 100 years ago, it would happen. Or if it was just like, you know, in the 70s with the AFL and the NFL, like, okay, we got to merge these leagues because we're killing each other. And then you go, all right, well, New York's going to have two football teams now because that's our compromise, you know, because they're both doing all right. So I don't know. I think Toronto should have another team. I mean, Hamilton's brought it up numerous times to put a team there. I mean, it's like 40 miles away from Toronto. Mm -hmm. So look, Batman gets accused all the time of being very U.S. centric when it comes to his plan and dream for the NHL. And he's got this penchant for Southern warmer market teams. Okay, fine. But yeah, Atlanta was a failure with the with the uh with the Thrashers. So they moved to Winnipeg. Great. You had Dallas, which was a, a relocated team. Dallas does fine. You know, Vegas has done fine. The California teams, more or less. It just depends on the season. Sharks, and you already brought them up, you know. But Florida teams, they're great. Carolina teams, great team. I mean, they all support and they have the fan base. What we're saying about Utah, the so I said the Grizzlies, and I said they weren't affiliated. I didn't mean they weren't affiliated. I meant the ownership wasn't affiliated with the Jazz. The team's affiliated. It's an E team for the Avalanche. So, but they've been there for a while, and their their attendance is pretty good. That's part of the reasons why they're they're kind of saying that you know there's a fan base here for hockey, and, and it could definitely support it. But I don't want to see a new team come in and it goes gangbusters right off the bat, and then all of a sudden they're horrible and attendance dwindles and attendance dwindles, and then it's down to being one of the lowest attendance team or a coyote type team. You know, again, it's down the road. I don't think it's going to happen. And if it does happen, okay, now we got an odd number of teams again. What, two, three more years before they add one more to even it out? So, plus the West will be unbalanced. So, maybe they'll move Detroit again. It's that seems to be the team that's, that's the team that's like, are they in the West or the East? Let's just yeah. bounce them around, you know. But we'll see. It's fun to think about. But I feel bad for Nashville because they should really be in the East and they're always a Western Conference team. Which is weird. I don't feel bad for Nashville. Yeah. They need to pick a better choice of music genres. I don't mind them adding teams in the West because they could probably use a little more representation there. I mean, you look at how dense the density of teams in the East, and I get it. That's how the country grew. It's like you have like New York, New Jersey, Boston, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Buffalo. And I I know that these aren't all like next door neighbors, but they're all like pretty 
still pretty close to each other, you know, versus say like Chicago to LA. But you get my idea. Like the West, it's always like they're way spread out more. You know what I mean? And well, so yeah, because the the American population, the urban areas are more are more condensed than the East, like you said. And in the West, it's very much spread out, like a, like a political map almost. And so yeah, in that case, having a team in Utah would would fill sort of that big gap in the middle of the country there, where there's no teams, but. You know, I don't think the league is looking to do that. I don't think that they're like, oh, look at this map. It looks very imbalanced. You know, you know, it's funny when I when I heard it was Utah that was bidding for this team. And it was weird timing for the NHL to throw that out there. But whatever. We won't talk about that now. But I did look up because I was like, Utah, you don't really hear about players coming from Utah. And I was curious. And basically, the only players from Utah were like Steve Conowalchuk and Trevor Lewis. And that was about it. Hmm. There's a lot of hockey there. I mean, there's, there's a, there's a few other ones that had a couple games here and there throughout. Like, remember the old goalie, Richard Bachman, Stephen King? Even though his name was Richard Bachman. But, yeah, nobody remembers him? Okay, cool. No. He played um, for the uh, Stars, I think. I think he had 49 games in the NHL. Total. Like what era? Uh, like 2010 through 19-ish. He bounced around between the AHL and the NHL. Hmm. So hmm. back and forth. He's usually a backup or emergency goalie, stuff mm. like that. So, mm-hmm. But yeah, so Steve Conowalchuk, who had like almost 800 games in the NHL. And yeah, Trevor he was Lewis. a solid player. Yeah, Trevor Lewis, who had like 900 and some games in the NHL. So yeah, that's it. It's, all, it's really it. So it's not like there's a huge tradition there necessarily. You had the Salt Lake Golden Eagles there in like the 80s and the 90s, the minor league team. And, you know, obviously the more hockey you have in an area, the more hockey players you'll have in the area. I mean, look, we make fun of the Coyotes, but Austin Matthews was at that game where Ovechkin scored against the Coyotes while lying on his back, right? So... You could say if there was no Phoenix Coyotes, there'd be no Austin Matthews. Well, he'd still be around, but maybe he'd be a tennis player or something. So, I don't know. I mean, I got to see the thing to be the thing. That's why I didn't get into hockey until I was 14, because I couldn't watch the damn games on TV, because I didn't even know they existed. Gotta love the Wirtz family. Yep. Moving along. I guess a case of 79-80 Opeechee hockey, 1979-1980 Opeechee hockey, which is best known for having the Wayne Gretzky rookie card, was discovered and is going to be sold at auction. Of course it's going to be sold at auction. I just love it when people like repost the link to the article or just a picture and a comment. And he said, the Gretzky rookie sells for $3.75 million. It's like, no, buddy, pump the brakes there. Like whenever there's a PSA 10 of something that sells for a lot of money, everybody just says the Gretzky rookie sells for $3 million. It's like, no dingbat, not to disrespect people who are interested in cards, but people who think that really don't know. And I guess that's okay because we want to educate people. But at the same time, people just like that number. Whatever the number is, it's, it's always about money. They, you know, they'll never say, well, a graded 10 example of the Gretzky sold for $3 million. It's always like, and the Gretzky card is worth $3 million. Back to you, Ted. And by the way, we should point out that even that 10 maybe isn't a 10, right? Because of the way these cards are cut and whatever. I understand that 
excuses are made for that kind of card and whatever. But but yeah, no, whenever there's a, always another case found or, you know, I, I always wonder what is out there. I also wonder what it'll do to the value. There's no shortage of Gretzky rookie. I mean, if you've ever been to the expo, you know that. Oh, yeah. I was looking for one. I spent the yeah. whole weekend looking for one that I could afford. Yeah, exactly. The argument is not whether I can find it. It's whether I, what can I afford. And look, it's Gretzky. The, the prices will go up. And But I'm always a little bit of a skeptic when I first heard, oh, they found a case of this. I'm like, okay. So that, that, was, my, that was my first reaction. I'm sure Tim was thinking the same thing. It's like, Well, when I first saw it, it was a Darren Ravel tweet. So first thing I see that I'm like, okay, we're getting the cliff notes version and there's more to this story. And it basically said family finds, you know, rare. And I see what it is. And I, yeah. And I look at the picture and I'm like, wait a minute, this case is sealed by our good buddy, Steve Hart at baseball card exchange. Uh oh. And I'm thinking, Uh oh, (laughs) they found this sealed like this already. Because no, no, they found it and they and they brought it to these people who, who put their yeah, yeah. So that's what I was thinking. I'm like, this is this is stinks to high heaven. So essentially, what this boils down to, and I've looked at it some more. I've watched the videos on it. I've watched the thing that Heritage put out. The provenance on it is, eh. You might believe half of it. You might believe all of it. You might believe none of it. But essentially, there's a family in regina saskatchewan they found this as part of a collection that was supposedly purchased at one time now it was in like the basement of this house what looked to be like a finished basement not like a deep dark dank area a dungeon (laughs) so they were going through all of this stuff trying to figure out what's worth something what's not worth something is this any good is this any good and lo and behold on the bottom of a pile they find a full vendor case sealed of 7980 opg now it's a full vendor case so there's 16 boxes in there no one's seen anything like this ever it's in 40 years and now all of a sudden this thing suddenly appears on planet earth and it's still sealed so somehow they get it to heritage auctions heritage auction says we gotta look have this take you know looked at they send it over to Baseball Card Exchange. Steve Hart takes a look at it, says it looks legit. He busts it open from the bottom, checks the, the, the glue, the sealant, to make sure that it looks authentic and hasn't been resealed. Pulls the cases out. I think all but three of them still had the tape intact. The three that didn't, the tape was there, but it had deteriorated already because it's so old. So it's kind of brittle. That all checked out to him and everything else. And then they go and they basically shrink wrap every single box, put them back in the case, close the case back up, sealed the box as well. So that's why the wrap is on it. So then Heritage gets it. They put it up for auction. The auction's listed. I mean, you guys can go and take a look at it. It's basically, they're predicting this is going to go anywhere from 2.3 to $3 million. Right now, the current bid is one. One million three hundred twenty-five. Well, they didn't—they didn't parse out all the boxes. They sold. They sold all. New. What, it's being sold case. as full case sealed. Full case sealed. Sorry to interrupt you, but you you buy it, and then what do you do with it? You 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 break it open. I mean, there's, there's got to be what okay. forty Gretzky rookies in there, right? All right. So that's the thing. So one point three two five. That's like a one. That's almost one point six million with buyer's premium. 
right now. Right. So they're thinking this is going to go upwards of $3 million. So let's say it does hit the $3 million mark, right? So pristine box, no joke. It looks pretty good. In fact, the only thing that the people did to it, this is the part that I'm like, come on. They peeled a little bit of it back to see what it would look like in the, the inside and saw that the boxes were white, but it's stamped on the outside of the box from Opeachy 1980 because it's 7980. So it says 80 on the box. So they peeled it back, saw that the boxes were white, realized that was 7980 and not 8081. You know, an 8081 sealed case, 300,000 maybe, but obviously 7980, much bigger deal. So yeah, to your point, there's anywhere between 18, safely, like 18 to probably 26, 27 Gretzky's in this case. There should be, based off a of normal collation. Because remember, these are Opeachy boxes, so there's 14 cards in a pack, no stickers, nothing extra in there. So you're talking potentially, you know, a rough estimate. Let's say there's 25 in there. Wait, 16 boxes, right? 16 full boxes, vendor boxes. 16 boxes. Is it like a two per, is it two per box? Isn't that the way they usually? These are vendor boxes. These aren't wax boxes. This is a vendor sealed case from the manufacturer that was only given distributed directly to shops you couldn't buy these these are full box packs so we're talking 16 boxes 48 packs per box right we're talking about like wax packs wax boxes yes full boxes okay so if there's 48 packs in a box yeah there's 14 in a pack in an opg they originally had the listing incorrect because when they first put it up, the description had the wax packs had 10 cards in them because that's what 10 cards plus a sticker is what it said. And that's the tops packs. Mm-hmm. The peachy packs had 14, no stickers either. So if you look at that, you have the potential here of obviously a ton of cards. You're going to be able to put a bunch of sets together. Not that anybody would want to put sets together of this. Maybe some people would. But look, Heritage sold a sealed box before for over $200,000. You know, there's a video out there that documents this find. Watching it, it's very interesting to see the whole thing. Again, I question that they didn't know that it was 1979-80. If they were collectors and they had all of this stuff, how would they not know that? But whatever is what it is. So there's dozens and dozens of stories going way back talking about how you know, these types of things were not sold to consumers because you couldn't buy them from a wholesaler, an individual person because of the Opeachy distribution agreement. So how this guy came about getting this, unless it was part of some big collection that he bought somewhere, I don't know, but apparently they've had this going way, way back. So that's neither here nor there. It's out there. It exists to Clemente's point. If you buy this, let's say you have $3 million dollars and you throw it out there to buy this. To open or not to open? Now let's look at this. Do you honestly think that, let's say there's 25 Gretzky's in there. Do you think that they're going to be tens? I don't. Because you look at how many cards. The odds are low. The odds are very low. Yeah. Look at how many PSA have graded. How many tens are there? How many PSA tens of this card are there? 
I'll save you the time. There's two. 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 There are two. There's two. That is it. And yes, one of those sold for $3.75 million. Great. Wonderful. Fantastic. It's awesome. It's really cool. But think about this. In April of 2021, Golden had an auction. It had a PSA 9, right? PSA 9 sold for $248,000. That was April of 21. Another PSA 9 sold in June of last year for $150,000 at auction. And a PSA 9 sold over the summer in August for $115,000. So $248,000 in the middle of the boom to June of last year to August of last year. It goes from $248,000 to $115,000. And that's a 9. So that's assuming you have a really, really good quality one out of a pack. And we all know these are off-center, they're miscut, they got the frayed edges to them. There's issues. There's coloring issues sometimes. You know, there's a lot of things going on with this card. It's very condition sensitive. So even though the bar's set a little bit lower for the fact that we know all of the cards are like that, so you're going to have those problems, still, they've graded all of these, multiple companies. There's two PSA 10s out of all, all of that mess. Let's assume that most of these are going to be eights, right? You got to pay to get them graded, first of all, and you're going to pay the premium based off of the overall value for how much they cost. Even if they were at a nine, the last sales were in the $100,000 ranges at auction. So if it was $100,000 times 25 cards, you still didn't make your money back after you spend the money to get them graded. So me, knowing that that risk is there, you buy this, you don't touch it. Let it sit for a little while. Let it marinate. Then roll it back out there for the world to see again. Just as everything dies off and people start to forget that it existed, roll it back out. Because no way, no way you're busting this and getting your money back. There is zero chance of that. And that's not my negativity. That's just me being honest and doing. Oh, the that's math. just math. That's all. <laughs> yes, math. exactly. So, speaking of math, and I said I was just adequate enough at math to not have to do lots of math. So, while you were talking about that, I did a little quick math here, and yeah, your um, estimate checks out. So, there are forty-eight packs in a box. There are fourteen cards per pack. So that's six hundred and seventy-two cards in a box. Now multiply that by 16 boxes in the case. That gives you 10,752 cards. There were 396 cards in the set. There were no double prints. There were no short prints. They were all printed the same because it was a multiple of 132, 132, 132. So 396 cards. So that means that you're going to get roughly about 27 point well i get 27.151515 infinitely but 27 so basically you're going to get probably between 25 and 28 or 26 and 28 somewhere around there i mean 27 so 27 is actually a very realistic estimate that's why i threw out 25 just to, for argument's sake right so not quite two per box but you know definitely you know one per box i mean unless it's been tampered to hell and back with right or would it be funny if it was full of those missing pokemon cards <laughs> it's filled with logan paul's pokemon cards. logan paul's pokemon cards yeah. yeah it's gonna turn to another one of these like al capone's vault 
It's like oh, basically it's open. Empty. It. It's empty. But no, in this case, I can see somebody buying it like one of these like, you know, guys like a Logan Paul and then trying to open it just for, to get the YouTube traffic and just to get the, the clicks. But you're right. Like anybody does back of the envelope math on this will say it's not worth it. But then you know what? If they buy it and they keep it sealed and they, like you said, bring it out a couple of years from now, it'll be worth more. And I'll just keep passing it around. But someone's going to bust it open because nobody wants to just have an empty box, like, like, a, like a full box of cards that they can't see. You know, I mean, that's not fun. If you're not going to bust the box open and just just annihilate the whole entire thing and have 10,752 cards lying all over your living room floor. Okay. If you're not going to be that guy and you're going to leave it sealed. Okay. I will shake your hand and pat you on the back. But if you have to open anything, my only suggestion would be if you're going to crack that case, assuming you pay 3 million for it, you crack the case open, open one box because you're probably going to get two Gretzky's. Maybe a third, probably not, but probably two. Take those, go with them. You have 15 boxes left that are sealed, that are still wrapped, that have the providence of being checked by auction houses. And we've been duped, guy. So once you do that, you know, considering a quarter million dollars went for one that heritage sold that didn't have the wrap and wasn't sealed or anything. So let's say you can sell these for 210 a piece each. Right. Okay. Now you at least got the joy of opening one. You got a couple Gretzky's. You might get a higher grade on them. You sell off the rest. You at least get the majority of your money back. That would be it. That would be the only time I would forgive. I want to know if they were legit. Like, and that's why I would want to open, like you said, like just one box, just to, just to even open it on YouTube. I mean, the traffic you'd get would be crazy. It's like in those movies where they're buy, where the the drug dealers and they're buying all the cocaine, and there's all the bricks of cocaine lying out on the table, and he always takes a knife, cuts one of the bricks, dips it in, licks it, and goes, "Yeah, that's good stuff, man." Right? You gotta do, you gotta like open a box, open a pack, be like. Yeah, these are legit. Look at those edges, man. You know what I mean? Like that's that's what I imagine you would do, right? Of course, it would suck if you like. I know, like these old cards don't really brick, but it would suck if you like opened a pack and they were like all like had like a major defect. But you could get the gum on the Gretzky card. Yeah, you don't have to worry about the bricking, but the gum is still gum. There. The gum is bad. And don't forget that the they they still sealed them with wax. The card on the back, all the way in the back would get hit with the wax because they used wax to seal yeah. the packs, hence the name wax packs. And and they were wax paper and sealed with wax. And then you had the other one where you had the gum stuck to it. I mean, I have a great Bill Ranford rookie card from 87, 88 OPG with a piece of pink gum stuck to it. I never removed the gum off the card. I just put it in a thicker top loader. If I ever meet Bill Ranford, I'll have him sign on the gum. <laughs> Well, and you know, I thought about that too when I was watching the video of them sealing these things up because they seal them with their their plastic. And how do you get the plastic to go, to to shrink wrap? You hit it with a heat gun. So I'm like, okay, they're putting heat on this. Are they melting the gum? It's already probably been turned to dust, and it's liquefying it now. 
I, so, I, I don't think I don't it'd know. be that uh, that bad, but probably not. But you know, I was just thinking all of these things and we're going through my head. I'm like, this is crazy. This is nuts. I think the biggest draw to this whole thing, it's not just us talking about it. It's not just hobby people talking about it. This has made national news. It was covered by the New York Times already. It was covered by the Post. It was covered by Washington. It was covered by bunch of the local newspapers up in the area where these people were from it's been on like a bunch of news broadcasts already so it's all over the place people are talking about in fact i listened to nhl radio almost all day and every single show brought it up every show didn't matter who the host was brought it up and they talked about it even if it was briefly so everybody's aware of it everybody's paying attention this is probably going to be one of the most highly watched auctions that heritage has probably had in a while probably since that babe ruth that red babe ruth uh uh what do you call it the baltimore sun card is the it? baltimore yeah. yeah yeah the baltimore card yeah. so it'll be interesting i don't know if it'll get the three million but the fact that it's already at 1.6 with buyer's premium and it's only been up for like a day that's kind of crazy Clemente, do you want to talk about that? Uh, there was another New York Times article about fanatics. You wanted to talk about that? Yeah, no, it's a good segue. You know, this is like one of those stories where, you know, we forget that our hobby, hobbies in general, are very much like a Dungeons and Dragons type situation where it's like a subculture. So whenever I see something out like in the mainstream, like this Gretzky thing, it's like, oh, wow, people who don't care about this now care. Or they're they care enough to say editors care enough to say this is a story because it's a trend right and so there's a big story about fanatics buying everything whether that's good or not now we all know about this because we've been talking about it and reading about it in hobby publications for years now but once it it shows up at the mainstream newspaper it was over the weekend a very big story and actually the, the piece starts with the reporter is at the at the chicago sports spectacular back in november went to the show and lots of photos is even a, a close-up of a guy or kid holding a broke case. So first thing I did when I went through the article, by the way, I looked at all the photos first to see if any of us were in them. <laughs> yeah. I figured you guys might be in them. And I did the same thing. And then one of them was like a guy holding a broke case. So I'm like, they captured the essence of the hobby for sure. It's a business story and it's about how fanatics is buying everything up and what the impact on, dealers and collectors and card shops. And it was all very factual. Now, Tim was right before the show. We, he said, there's nothing new in this. And that's true. There's nothing new in it. But it does bring to the attention of the general public something that we all know about already. Now, it does do a couple of things that are negative for the hobby, which is people think everything is worth money. Every card's expensive. It's not the case. This story tends to want to focus on the big money stuff, right? The big dollar signs, because that's what makes it an interesting story. But it does put, bring up a good point about fanatics being a, potentially a monopoly. The article doesn't say that, but if, if you're a lawmaker and you're reading this, you might think, oh, this could be a problem. And I know I've brought this up before about fanatics you know, being a monopoly and whether or not the government would ever get involved. Stories like this move the needle, though, in that direction. Like if you're fanatics, you want the attention. But at the same time, you really don't, I think. And it seems like the people in this article were all really open to speaking. And, you know, I'll read you the headline, the subhead, the subhead pretty much tells you what, you know, what the story is about, which is, you know, it says powered by its connections with leagues and star athletes, the merchandising giant has entered the hobby universe with deep pockets and sharp elbows. 
not everyone is happy. And they go into the whole panini thing and everything else. It's a good piece. I would, I would recommend reading it, especially if you're someone like us that's immersed in the hobby, because it does, this is the kind of thing where like at Thanksgiving or at Christmas or at a public, you know, a birthday party or whatever, and people know you're into cards, someone will say, I didn't read this article in the Times. Like it, it crosses into the mainstream. It's just really interesting. And I, I know people were sharing it today in my friend groups because it was, oh, look, they're writing about the hobby in the New York Times. It's a, it's a big deal. It, it just, it means that we're not just siloed or like some strange subculture. It's like, oh, people are paying attention to this. So it's, it's, it's really interesting, I think. You know what I found funny about it? Like like you said with the title, it, it kind of says, oh, Fanatics is taking over the world and they're using all their connections and their buddy-buddy system of, of making their way through everything. And not everybody's happy about it. If you read the article, the only people not happy about it that they even mention is Panini. I know. It's weird. And like all the people they talk to, the dealers they talk to, the collector people they talk to all the comments are like yay fanatics woo and it's like what that's not the vibe that we get from a lot of the people we talk to that's not the vibe we get at all people are scared dealers are scared collectors are scared it's like this uncertainty that's kind of washed over everything because if you're not on board with them you're blocked that's how they've been treating things if you aren't towing the company line then you're blocked well in the piece it does mention very deep in the piece when it talks about card shops it mentions burbank sports and the guys there say basically well we don't really deal with a lot of wax we buy singles we sell singles right and and then that's and that was to me like oh in the new york times is an interesting publication they'll write these like five thousand word pieces and then all of a sudden like five paragraphs from the bottom you're like this is the story. Like, this is the nugget I'm looking for. Not all this other stuff that all this garnish, you know, this is the meat. And, you know, it's like, this is the piece that like for us is like, oh, and, and stores will have to pivot because they don't really go into the whole allotment. We all know a couple of months ago, there was all this talk about how fanatics want to control, like when your store was open, you had to keep a log of everything. It doesn't get into all that stuff, you know, which is fascinating because that, that would have been, if you're doing research for this piece, all you have to do is read all the hobby publications that everybody wrote about this a year ago. And it doesn't get well, it. Of course. If you're, if you're fanatics though, this is like a PR piece for, for, for fanatics. It was a very good piece for fanatics. That's exactly how I read it because it's like, where was the question to Michael Rubin about, Hey, um, so I have a copy here of the licensing agreement for all of your dealers. So what's this about them only being able to do this, 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 and that there are no questions about that. Like, this might as well have been a certain YouTube channel asking questions, just throwing up softballs. Here you go. Here you go. Here you go. Look, I've talked to my local card shop guy. And I'm not talking about baseball card exchange here. You know, that's, that's a different animal. My local card shop, I've talked to the guy. He's been in business for 50 years. And I walked in and I looked at his shelves and I'm like, huh, I don't see the tops display. Everything's not front and center. Where's all the signage? Where's all the nice shelving and everything all nice and neat, priced perfectly and everything else. And he's like, I'm not doing that. I'm like, I'm not doing that. I'm like, so how do you expect to get allocation going forward? He's like, I don't. 
If I get allocation, it's going to be something that I'm able to pick up from a distributor. The distributor is not going to get it directly from Tops or from Fanatics because the distributors are basically cut off when it comes to that. So guess what we'll be selling? Older product because we can still get that. Or if the piece says, the, the one card shop guy says, oh, we have lots of Panini products and people really like those. You know? Yeah. So, well, and, and that's the thing. As long as they don't completely shut that valve off for Panini all the way, you know, they can still put out some things. But, you know, they've got a laundry list of potential sets that still have yet to be released that were once announced that I don't see how they're going to catch up with all the licensing being pulled. So, you know, if stuff's already in the hopper and they're able to produce it, great. But, Good luck getting those through the uh, printing plant that's owned by Fanatics that you use. I don't know. Yeah, the, the article is interesting. We should mention, though, that there was no, there's no hockey mentioned at all. Oh, no. The, they didn't bring up hockey at Proper all. deck, nothing. It's not, yep. not part of it yet. Yeah. Not even mentioned it. No. Whenever money's mentioned, that's when people really care. You know, they always talk about how does it influence the, what is it, Clemente, the loaf of bread, the price of bread. Right, exactly. Or the cost of milk or whatever. Yeah. Right. The cost of milk, the cost yeah. of uh cereal. Cereal, yeah. Yeah. Whatever. And so like, yeah, it's it's all dungeons and dragons to them until you start throwing around numbers, then all of a sudden everybody's like, Oh, this is cool. You know what I mean? Like all of a sudden it's a cool thing. It's like it's kinda like how being a geek all of a sudden became cool like ten years ago, but it wasn't really so much cool. It was like, oh well, you know. Geeks buy stuff and, uh, oh, Star Wars figures are worth money now. So maybe we shouldn't be making fun of the people who buy Star Wars figures or whatever. Right. I mean, that just seems to kind of be like the mindset now. Like it's like things can't be cool unless there's like a dollar sign attached to it. That's unfortunate because that's really not what our show's about. It's not what we're about as collectors. I mean, you know what? It's nice when we have stuff that appreciates in value. Because, you know, there's some desirability to it. I mean, as collectors, I mean, you know, you collect what you like. I Like I said, I joke, I still have my set of Pogs from 94, 95, my NHL Pogs. Bought them after the fact, didn't buy them back then. Couldn't find them back then. But but I, I think, yeah, I, it's just it's just kind of funny how, like, if it has to do with money, then people pay attention. And otherwise, they're just like, yeah, whatever, nerd hobby. Anyway, before we get into our retro set, retrospective let's talk about 2324 opg because tim you said the checklist just came out and there's something like 34 different connor bedard cards i'm assuming these are all the inserts and parallels you said not counting printing plates but i'm sure there's like a first year star type of insert card that's not a rookie card probably be easier to get than the rookie card though what do you want to say about opg that there's 34 Connor Bedard cards in it. Oh, is that it? That's our talking point? That's pretty much all I had to say about it. Is, you know, everybody's been waiting with bated breath for this Young Gun card to roll out here. And here's Opeechee. It's, you know, the marquee rookie that's in there, along with 33 other Connor Bedard cards. And like I said, it that doesn't count the printing plates of all the various printing plate cards that exist. So I was kind of shocked by that. I thought it would be more, to be honest with you. I really did. I thought they were going to go full on, full bore, and just make every single insert set that was included in there 
put him on one of them. But he's in the Platinum Previews. He's in the Opeachy Premier Inserts. He has a 3D Marquee Rookie. He's the Bounty Card. He's got a Wood Variant. And then he's got all of the various versions of Retro and Base Card. So in total, that adds up to like 34 cards. So crazy. Well, you said said they were going to milk it. You're right. (laughs) Should be a fun year to collect. Yeah, like I said, I thought it was going to be more, to be honest with you. Be a fun year to collect Opeachy. Yeah. I don't think they've changed configuration since last year, so it looks like you're going to be getting kind of the same same kind of thing in there. As far as, like, all the other rookies go, all the usual suspects are there for 23-24. You know, nobody seems to be missing necessarily out of this grouping. So that's good you know, having the selection of all of the rookies available that you would want to see within the marquee rookie um, name is uh, is pretty good. Is there a price up on the box? Like, it, do you think all these Bedard cards are going to raise the price or are people just looking to get the young guns and that's why the Series 2 is so expensive? I mean, we've been saying that all along that people are targeting going after those. And that's the thing. When I saw the checklist come out, I was like, oh, great. There's that many, you know, that many Bedards. That means people are going to be going crazy for this. That's my initial reaction. And then I start to think, you know what? With Series 2 just around the corner, I bet people are still going to hold off and just target that young gun and go after it. Because boxes of this right now, they're around 100 bucks. That's to, a, that's difficult. To, to pre-order them. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, they're between 90 and 110 depending on where you go. and. The last couple years at release time and and leading up to release time, that's been pretty pretty close to where they've been. Now, as soon as Opeachy hits, when Opeachy hits, once it's out for a month, that price plummets. I was going to say it's 18 packs. It's 18 packs. Yeah, it is. Isn't it like usually like a $60 a box kind of product? No, it's more than that. Not out of the gate. Mm. Out of the gate, it's a, it's around a hundred bucks, and then after about a month that it's out there, you'll see it drop down to around 80, 70, and it'll settle in around that sixty-five to eighty range most of the time. Depending on the year, if it's a weak rookie class, they'll lower the price at shows and at stores and stuff like that. If it's still sitting around on shelves as old inventory, but I don't see this one going down in price that much. Maybe slightly when Series 2 comes out, but I would think this is going to sit at around 90 to 100 bucks for at least the rest of the season, probably. That's my guess. Hmm. So if you want to shot at, a, at a, an actual real Bedard rookie card, there you go. We know he's only going to have one real rookie card, and that's his young gun, because everything else is not a rookie card, according to these collectors. Yeah. You said air quotes with your eyes. Collectors, yes. (laughs) Intonation, collectors. So I want to geek out about some old cards from 30 years ago. It's, you know, the 30th anniversary of the 93-94 season. I know we said we weren't going to talk about the All-Star game, but I will say that I really did enjoy the 94 All-Star game that was in Madison Square Garden. 
that I remember watching. Remember, I was still working at the comic book store and the game was on a Saturday. And I remember uh, like it wasn't too busy for a Saturday. And I remember just parking, you know, in front of our little little color television. Oh, I had a coworker with me and he's just like, ah, I'll run the shop. You sit and just chill and watch the hockey game because he knew it was important to me. And I remember the player introductions and they had like this 10 minute version of summer song by Joe Satriani playing as they were introducing all the different players in their purple or blue all-star jerseys. And you know, that's another thing too. We make fun of these new all-star jerseys, but you know what, back in the nineties, there were probably people who were like, Hey, why do we have teal and purple all-star jerseys? They should be black and white. And I was just like, yeah, teal and purple. This is awesome. Cause you know, in the nineties, everything was teal and purple and punch you in the eyeballs green. You know what I mean? Like everything was very bright, you know? So I liked that season. I liked collecting that year. I liked 93, 94 upper deck hockey. It was um, a pretty big deal at the time because it was the first year that Upper Deck went with two distinct series. Now we talk about Series 1, Series 2, and eventually Extended Series came, you know, much later. But prior to this, Upper Deck would do high number packs that would have like the last 200 cards where like maybe... There'd be like nine cards from the old series and then three cards from the new series. But they didn't call it Series 2. They just called it High Number Series. And people got really annoyed by that because you'd spend most of the hockey season building the set pack by pack. And then it'd be like, oh, guess what? The last 200 cards you need to finish your set, they're also in packs that are going to have cards that you already have. So in 90-91 and 91-92, they did put out High Number box sets. I don't believe they did that in 92-93. But then in 93-94, they went with the two separate series. Series 1, Series 2. They even advertised it in like the publications. Like, if Gretzky has a card in Series 2, it's going to be completely different. That's because the Series 2 cards are all different from the Series 1 cards or whatever. So, Series 1, 310 cards. Series 2, 265 cards, total of 575 cards, which was um, kind of small for Upper Deck, considering that, you know, their 91-92 set had like 700 cards, and I think 92-93 was like 660 or something like that. I, I don't quite remember, but so it was a little bit of a step backwards. There were tons of inserts, and then another unique thing that Upper Deck did that year is they did in their Series 2 packs... They did a set called SP, which was like the set within a set. We talk about like how there's canvas is like the set within the set. And there's like a standalone SP set like years later. But there were restrictions that at that time, companies could only put out two sets. So Upper Deck put out their Upper Deck set and they put out the Parkhurst set. They also wanted to put out SP, but they snuck those into packs of Series 2. Then later SP became its own standalone set. Clemente, did you collect this back in the day? I did. I remember buying uh, packs of this. You know, I think I was still buying packs and not like complete boxes, which nobody really did back then. Though I did do that for 1991, I think, Upper Deck. I did buy a box. Wow. Uh, yeah. But yeah, no, this is a great set. And, you know, looking back at some of these cards, you know, I, I would consider this 
the ugliest of the designs, but in quotes, because it's not ugly at all. But Upper Deck was so innovative that at this point it seemed almost like routine, you know, with the photography and everything else. But I mean, looking back, it's it's still a very nice set. Uh, you know, for me, like, you know, obviously for me and everybody else, you know, it's always fun to chase some of the rookies in the set. And, and they were still doing that whole World Junior Championships players in there. So it's kind of fun to look back some some of those names, some of them, some of them, you know, didn't get far. Some of them did. But no, I, I like this set and I, you know, I, I'm a big fan of, of just all the upper deck stuff from the early 90s to the mid 90s. I mean, I will say after after 95, 96, I started to collect a lot less hockey, but no, I did buy a lot of this. Uh, I was buying a lot of this and a lot of 1994 upper deck World Cup soccer. So that, so I have a lot of upper deck cards from, from this time. Is that the Tim, set that about... had the weird looking Gretzky card in it? That's right. Well, yeah, the one with the squid thing in the sun. <laughs> oh, there were two. He's wearing like a sweater. There's two. There's that one because they did one for each venue and then did one for like the captains. And in the captains, when he's, it's like a very low shot of like from the bottom up of like him with a soccer ball. And right, is, that, is, that, is that, Sal, is that my memory good on that? Yeah, or, I like yeah. that one. Yeah, it's it's like from the ground, you're looking up at Gretzky and he's got right. his foot on the soccer he ball. Looks like a, he looks like a statue, like he's huge. I like that card. I mean, it's a great, it's a great card. It's yeah. it's Gretzky playing soccer. The they other one that's yeah, they basically forced all their spokespeople to pose. So Joe Montana has one, and Reggie Jackson has one. Was Gordy, Gordy Howe is one for Detroit because he he's from Detroit, and that was one of the venues of the tournament. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I didn't know Gordy Howe has a soccer card. I got to track that. I got to track that. Yeah, down. probably get it for ninety nine cents somewhere. I'm sure. Yeah, or but that that this is that era of those cards, you know, and so yeah. you know, um, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I love the design of the stuff, and I still do, even thinking looking back to it, you know, I, in some ways, the design of this set is nicer than some of the cards that come out today, you know. I, I feel like this set, and Tim, I know you got a lot to say, but I want to say, I feel like this set really tried hard in a good way, and I feel like Upper Deck tried harder back then. I don't, I don't think that's really true but by try harder here's what i mean we got a picture on the front of the card we got a completely different picture on the back of the card we don't get that anymore we get the same picture reprised and look at how big the picture is on the back of the card it fills up pretty much 75 percent of the card i like the fact that there were there are two photos you know uh you said how you thought the design was ugly but you said that in air quotes because it's maybe just a little more routine. I mean, I love the fact that there's like a hockey stick at the bottom of the card to like border the bottom of the card and how the borders match the team colors. Because that year, 93, 94, you had the Ducks and the Panthers came into the league. So there was an expansion draft. And so they had a lot of cards of like Ducks and Panthers and they were just portrait shots. So what did he do on the back? They didn't reprise the photo because it'd be the same photo they actually wrote a biography. I mean, they had to think of like 75 words to say about Dave Lowry, and they did. If I wrote it, it would have been, Dave Lowry was left unprotected by the St. Louis Blues, who didn't think he'd be of value to their team moving forward. He was drafted by the Florida Panthers because they were just like, eh, right? But instead, 
They say a seven-year veteran, Dave Lowry, will be playing for his third NHL franchise in the 93-94 season. The Panthers used the 36th pick in phase one of the 93 NHL expansion draft to add him to their first-year squad. Okay, I'll spare you from the rest, but you get the idea. They really did their homework. He was picked with the 36th pick from phase one of the expansion draft because there were like two phases where like, I don't know, these teams drafted, those teams drafted, but you get the idea, right? So yeah, I feel like in a way they kind of did try a little bit harder. Now they would say Dave Lowry had three assists November 7th, propelling the Blues to a 3-3 tie. And that's what they would write. They would just find the first thing they can find about that guy. Oh, Connor McDavid had a hat trick. And two nights later, he had another hat trick. Okay, that's kind of cool. I'd rather know that, you know, Connor McDavid likes to play guitar in his spare time. To me, that's more interesting. Yeah, but so two things are play here. One, they set the bar really high for design because those early 90s cards were so trailblazing that by year four, I agree. And then, to, you know, you're comparing the backs of today to back then. I mean, the truth is today, I don't think anyone's reading the back of the card. and People just get all the information off the internet anyway. Back then, we knew everything on the back of the card because it was informational for us. And so they have to try harder back then. Now they don't have to try so hard. And so you're right. That's my feeling about those two things. But but yeah, in general, it's interesting to look back at these sets 30 years. And I can't believe it's been 30 years. And to kind of compare eras. It's not just the cards, but it's also the way we look at the cards and the way we interact with them. It's very different. I mean... I know this from today. I barely look at the backs of the cards today. Barely. Yeah, I still do. Not that I go there because I could just Google their stats or anything, but I look at them because I look at them from a design standpoint. Casal, you're right about the, you know, the fact that they put a photo on the front and a photo on the back. I mean, Leopard Deck did that from the get-go with 1991 forward. Not until 98, 99 did they start like shrinking that back photo down to where it wasn't the predominant feature of the back. I mean, in 93, 94, it was well over half the back of the card. If it wasn't for those stat lines back there, this, that could almost be what the regular card would look like compared to some of the stuff that they put out today where they have so much border and design and everything all around it. Yeah, I mean, these are nice, well, very well-designed cards. One of the big features of these, I think, were the insert sets back then. I remember buying these at the store when you could find them. And I almost don't remember series one being around anywhere. I remember seeing series two almost exclusively because I think at the time upper deck was very, it had gotten so popular at that point as a, as a product where I was, you wouldn't find it as often. I mean, it, it was plentiful, but you couldn't just go necessarily to a retailer and find this. You probably have to find it at a hobby shop. So I bought more, way more Series 2 than I bought Series 1 because I never saw Series 1. But yeah, it's a great set. I mean, obviously uh, an important one to have if you're going for all of the upper deck base sets. One thing I do like a lot about this was I think, if I'm not mistaken, this was the first year that Silver Skates was thrown out. Mm-hmm. And those, those were die cut. And you think, oh, die cut, that's like a normal, common, everyday occurrence. It wasn't back then. That was a rarity to, to see stuff like that. It was kind of, I want to say it was innovative technology, but it was newer technology for trading cards. 
So having the, the die cut and, and the fact that they introduced SP for the first time, uh, which later has become gone on to become its own brand and everything else. But that was uh, kind of a cool set. It was a very colorful standalone brand that it could have been even at the, that own time. But back then it was just an insert set. So I do like this set a lot. I don't necessarily think there's any one thing that jumps out at me other than the fact that there's no young guns. So none of you investors are going to like it at all, but you know, there's plenty of star rookies and plenty of um, firepower when it comes to the rookie class that was in there. Oh wait, no, no, there wasn't the, the rookies on this were kind of rough at the time. They weren't, you want to talk about the rookies you can but i actually have a nice little list here of some of the notables less notables and unnotables i mean, probably the most notable is going to be chris osgood i would say about any of them i mean if there's anybody out of the rookies that are on there that are close to being potentially a hall of famer it would be that particular person with chris well, osgood. although sergey gonchar is in there too yeah so i was gonna say so the notable rookie cards that are found only in 93 94 upper deck and I, I always do this every year when I do my, like, you know, I rank the different sets and I, you know, rank the sets from like 93, 94. One thing that I do is I thoroughly go over the checklist because I always like to see like what guys only have one rookie card. They might have a bunch of cards later on. I'll give you like a perfect example. Mike Sullivan who's the coach of the Penguins now, right? He had a very solid NHL career, but his only rookie card was 91, 92 Parkhurst. That was the only card that he had issued that year. After that, he got a bunch of cards because then he was an NHL regular, right? So I love finding just those like weird one-offs, you know, where like this guy only had a card, a rookie card in this set. So as far as notable rookies in 93, 94, that is rookies that had an impact in the league that only had a card in upper deck that year. Uh, Sergey Breland, Sergey Gonchar, Rudy Poshek, and Kimo Timonen. I mentioned Poshek because I know he played, he played like a bunch of years for the Rangers and never got a card. And then like when he like got moved to a different team by like the nineties, then he started like getting cards. So I just always thought that was funny, but yeah, Kimo Timonen, right? He has a world junior championship card in that set. And then other notable rookie cards were also found in other 93, 94 sets. Kevin Adams, Adriana Coyne, Valerie Bure, Anson Carter, Jamie Langenbrunner, Brian McCabe, Chris Osgood, and Mike Pekka. So those guys had rookie cards in other sets right. as well as this set. But then Anson Carter was in there. Oh yeah, Anson Anson Carter's in there. But then rookie cards of guys only found in this set who also had like almost no NHL career but still had a card. Todd Harkins. 48 games played for the Chicago Wolves later on, but Todd Harkins, his only rookie card is in this set. Ralph Intranuovo, 22 games. Keith Osborne, 16 games. Doug McDonald, 11 games. Anatoly Fedotov, four games. Philippe de Roville, three games. Penguins Chad legend. Penguins legend, yes. I remember watching him with the Cleveland Lumberjacks. Chad Penny, three games. Dan Ratushny, one game, plus 10 guys have rookie cards in this set that haven't played any games in the NHL. So that's the thing. 
upper deck used to just put a lot of rookie cards in its set. It's like throw a bunch of stuff at the wall and see what sticks. So at this point, they kind of had to start following some rules. They couldn't show guys in minor league uniforms. I don't think they did before. They might have, you know, shown guys in like practice sweaters and stuff like that. But at this point, they were still doing the World Junior Championship cards. Series one had World Junior players from the 93 WJC. And Series 2 had players from the 94 WJC. A lot of World Juniors in there. But yeah, you're right. No young guns. Though there were a bunch of star rookies. 20% of the set is rookie cards. There's 117. I know. Crazy. So that's nuts. But yeah, there's no young guns because they didn't use that design in this set. It hadn't become a staple of the industry at that point. It was just kind of a, hey, okay, we're going to call these young guns, whatever. I don't think they thought at the time it was going to be its own essential brand. Right. uh, Star Rookie was a label that they used a lot as well in some of their brands. Even if it doesn't have the star power in the rookie class, it's still a very cool set. I mean, the design itself is, is great. It's top notch. You know, if you look at the first few years of Upper Deck, as far as the design goes, I would put this right up there. I would actually put it ahead of 9192. Hmm. I like 9192 with the with the logo and kind of like that speed. I, I do like it. I think these are more colorful. Yes, I agree. The color match for the teams and the borders and everything kind of pops a little more. So another fun fact about this set. I already talked about this being the first upper deck set that had a series one, series two. Uh, another fun fact though is that in series one, the world junior championship cards have a gold foil stamp in the corner with the world junior championship logo however you can find some world junior championship cards without that foil stamp logo because that's something they added after the fact and you can also find team scoring leader cards that accidentally have that foil stamp logo for the world junior championships in the corner so you might be looking at a card and be like It's a team scoring leader, but then you see the World Junior Championship logo in the corner stamped on it. So they stamped the wrong card, basically. They count as errors. Yeah, Uh, they're errors. Not officially. I'd say they're more defects, but whatever. Yeah, I think they're errors because they have corrected versions. So It's about as much of an error as if you find an upper deck card missing the foil stamping. Like if you say, well, it doesn't have his name on the card. Well, his name is stamped. It's a production thing more than uh, an error, like a statistic or like a birth date or something. Yeah, I think an error has to be like when you are trying to do the right thing, but you do the wrong thing. Like you say, hey, I, I think this is Dave Manson and it's really Steve Conroy. And you go, oh, no, that's not Dave Manson. Let's fix that picture or that's not how you spell Shane Corson's first name and then you change the name or, oh no, this guy has a bloody nose. We can't show that. And then you like change the photo or Billy Ripkin's baseball bat has a bad word on it. We can't show that. Let's just black it out. Right. Well, I guess those are variants, at least with the Billy Ripkin stuff, because he intended to have that written on his bat. That was not the mistake. The mistake was the card company using that photo. Or maybe it wasn't a mistake. Who knows, right? There's like four versions of that correction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did either of you ever send in for the Silver Skate Redemption? No. 
I never did. But what? So what? That what that entail? You could pull a redemption card and then mail it in for the whole silver skate set. Okay. And then there was a gold version of that as well, with gold parallels. Did you do it or no? No. Oh. No. no. I never. I never even saw the card. A few times I've seen the gold silver skate set, the golden skate set, but it's not called golden skates. It's called silver skates. Should be called golden skates, but should be called golden skates. Yeah, Yeah. I agree. But I've seen the gold silver skate set a couple times, but not very often. Mm. So some of the other inserts in this set, you had 10 Gretzky's great ones, which were found in series one packs and jumbo packs. You had 10 Future Heroes found in U.S. Series 1 Hobby Packs. You had 20 Hat Tricks found in Series 1 Jumbo Packs. You had 6 Next in Line. I call them holograms. They're not really holograms. They're like printed on like foily, kind of like holographic backgrounds, but they're not holograms. So Next in Line, those are found in Series 1 Packs. 8 Award Winners found in Canadian Series 1 Packs. 10 NHL Best found in U.S. Series 1 retail packs, 15 Program of Excellence, found in Canadian Series 2 packs, 20 Silver Skates, 10 were found in U.S. Series 2 hobby packs, 10 were found in U.S. Series 2 retail packs. So you see what they did there. You had the SP4 hologram of Timu Solane, found in Series 1 packs. You had an oversized Wayne Gretzky card that was found on the bottom of Series 1 boxes. Uh, You had this uh, Silver Skate Redemption card that could be uh, mailed in and the Silver Skate's Gold Redemption card that could be redeemed for the gold set. There were 180 SP inserts found in uh, Series 2 packs, one per pack, two per jumbo pack. And then the Wayne Gretzky card had some variants, but they weren't actually found in Upper deck. So the Wayne Gretzky card was numbered 99, as it should be. So the card on the back is 99. But then when he set the all-time goal scoring record of 802 goals, what they did was they made one with a gold stamp on it that said 802 goals. And those are found in uh, 93-94 Parkhurst packs. They also did one where they stamped it in silver, and that was a promo card. So a couple of different Gretzky's, you know, the same Gretzky card, but just with different foil stamps on it. Anyway, yeah, so it's good, good set. I, I love having it. Um, I love collecting it back in the day. And I think that, like, if you're a hardcore collector, you definitely need to pick up every Upper Deck set going from 1994, at least until it starts to get hard with, like, the short prints and stuff. 1991 through, like... I think 97, 98 was before they got into the the short prints. Well, and I think the fact that this is the first time we saw the silver skates that they've used over and over again. This is the first time SP showed up, which is now its own brand. This is the first time Program of Excellence, I think, showed up in a set, which now gets used fairly frequently, uh, especially with like the canvas cards now the last few years. Um, So this is kind of like the dawn of a bunch of different you know, IPs that still exist today. You had some fun subsets that would now be insert sets. I'll give you like a, for instance, you had 100 point club cards, players who scored 100 points. You had team scoring leaders, 
which, you know, now if you did something like that, they might be like a, an insert, right? So I think it was kind of cool that they, they did that sort of thing. And then, of course, you had like the World Junior Championship, and you don't really get that anymore for, you know, licensing reasons. But I'm paging through the set, and I'm just really liking the variety of photos. Like, I mean, I'm going to describe to you, here's one of Joseph Stumple fighting for the puck, and he's like, leaning hard on his uh, skates, the pucks below him. He's looking down. He's trying to outmuscle uh, an opponent. And here's Vincent Damfus skating and looking over his shoulder for a pass. Here's Tom Curvers skating straight forward. Kind of an okay photo. Here's Doug Gilmore fighting for the puck. Here's Trevor Linden. You know, looks like he just either made a pass or he's ready to get a pass. Here's Dominic Hasek. He's got his glove ice level. Looks like he's handling the puck and he has his like glove behind the stick, you know, to kind of reinforce, you know, his save. I mean, there are some really cool photos in here. Here's Steve Iserman crashing the blues net. You know, here's Scott Pearson. Looks like he's a little bit off balance, but it's still cool. Here's Claude Lemieux with somebody grabbing him by the sweater, as they should. You know, I mean, there's a lot of just great photos in in the set and I feel like a lot of the upper deck cards especially like during the pandemic it was just like that kind of like knees and up kind of photo because you know the photographers had that same vantage point but I feel now that like there are good photos and there are some variety but I feel like the best photos they put on canvas and then like the other photos just get used in series one and series two. But I look at this and I go, man, these are just some great pictures. Oh, I agree that the, the photos on these cards look like something you'd see in stadium club, like baseball. Yes. It's that kind of photography. And, and I agree also with the team point leaders, I, you know, today we'd call them inserts, I guess, back then they were just part of the base set, but I love the Mark Messier one. Cause he, he just looks like he's, <laughs> He's got his game face on in that one. I remember like pulling that card and being, you know, 94 was all about the Rangers. So I, I was, you know, super into all the Ranger cards I can pick up back then. But I agree. The photography is really sharp. And that's saying a lot because it was always pretty good, even in the earlier upper deck years. But no, I, I, I you know, it's funny. It's very nostalgic to look back at these, these cards. I haven't really looked at this set in a long time. I don't have the complete set. I have basically had the, all the Rangers cards from that year, like a team set. But no, it's a lot of fun. And in a lot of ways, it, it makes me think that over time, things have gotten lazier, if that's the best word for it. And I agree with you saying that they, they really seem to care here. I think they realized they raised the bar so much that they had to you know, figure something out here in terms of like how do we keep people interested in our products. You know, and I forgot that they also had these NHL all-rookie team that used like a triple exposure photograph, which they would do a lot in like the 90s. And now if they do something like this, it's like a one in a thousand pack kind of surprise card. But I'm like looking at this Timu Solani card, like taking a slap shot and it's pretty freaking cool. I mean, yeah, the variety back then was just so much fun in like the set itself. And you know what? I don't have a problem with the way Upper Deck series one is right now because i mean ultimately we want the player cards like you know i think 198 player cards and two checklists and then your 50 young guns that that's fine i get it especially since we get a series one a series two an extended series because i'd rather have more cards of different players 
than like, oh, and now here's a team scoring leader card of Connor McDavid and a team captain card of Connor McDavid. And I kind of get why you do that. You put the the favorite players in, you know, multiple times. It gives people more of the star players to chase. And I get that. There's there's an argument for that. But, you know, I mean, wouldn't it just be cool if they made an NHL set that just had like every player that played that season? One card of everybody. Almost what Opeachy is. Yeah, almost. Opeachy's there. And that's what kind of like what Compendium was. Yeah. For the couple of years that Compendium was a set. I have the whole 900 card compendium set from 1617, and I'm still debating if I want to put it in pages or not. It's a lot of pages. It's like a Bible. <laughs> That's 900 player cards, no checklists, just player cards. 900 players who played in the NHL during the 2016 17 season. I'm getting off topic here, but. Part of me wants to put that in a binder and part of me wants to just be like, eh, do you really, are you going to really look at them? I don't know. But uh, I like looking at this set. I like looking at this 93, 94 set. There is just, you know, something great about it. I totally recommend you go buy one. You can find it relatively cheap, not break the bank on it. You were bringing up a bunch of the cards that you like the photos of. One of my favorites is the Ulf Samuelson card. Oh, yeah. It's like a close-up of him, and he's got that Cooper helmet with the uh, the iTech face shield on it because mm-hmm. his face got jacked up beforehand. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's the one. But I especially like the picture on the back where he's clearing the crease out by blatantly cross-checking Rob Brindamore. And notice in the picture, there's no goalie to be found anywhere near the crease. <laughs> so it makes me wonder where Tom Brasso disappeared to. He's on the other side of uh, Brindamore. You could see his Shearwood stick. He's pretty far out. Yeah. He's playing the angles there. But yeah. Cam Neely's good friend, Wolf Samuelson. I always like this uh, Chris Chelios card because he's like celebrating a goal. I don't think it's his goal, but his, his helmet got knocked off. Back then, if your helmet got knocked off, you could still play. So he's got his helmet off and he's got his, his arms up after somebody scored. And then, you know, on the back, there he is, you know, mucking it up along the boards. Yeah, I mean, it's a cool... I think he's celebrating hitting that guy. That's probably what he's celebrating. (laughs) To your point about this being a good set to pick up, yeah, it's not that expensive. You're not going to break the bank getting it. Look, it it comes from an era where, you know, that rookie class was kind of plagued with. There were a lot of rookies, but none of them really made it that much. And it was still the era where anybody could print rookie cards pretty much any time they wanted. So there were world juniors and, you know, most of the rookie class, you brought up that team Solani card of the all rookie team. Look at the checklist of the all rookie team. Most of the guys on it had rookie cards the previous year or the year before that. There's guys that qualify as rookies, but they've already had their rookie card in product. So yeah. I think that's part of the part of the issue that a lot of people run into. They're like looking for certain people and they're not there. Right. Yeah. They had to go back three years to get their rookie card. Cool. But it still doesn't change the fact that it's a it's a pretty solid set. All right, then. Should we wrap this one up? Let's wrap it up. Let's do it. Going once, going twice. All right. So thank you for listening to the Puck Junk Hockey Podcast. As always, if you've enjoyed this show, please be sure to like and subscribe. Please try to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. If you feel like supporting this podcast, you could uh, pick up a t-shirt at shop.com. 
junk.com. Also, if you want to pre-order one of my new 1990s goalie shirts, you can do so by reaching out to me on social media. And until next time, collect what you like. For more hockey goodness, follow us on Twitter at PuckJunk.